Hello and welcome back to episode 12 of RocketPod, our final episode of the first series. My name is Harry Damon, with me is James Cuss and producer Peter Haynes. We're going out with a bang for this episode as we're bringing on the mic David B. Horn, number one best-selling author, TEDx speaker and entrepreneur. Enjoy. So David, welcome to the show. Um, welcome to RocketPod, I should say. Uh, so David is um, a very experienced CFO, um, a world-acclaimed, well, best-selling author for his book, Add, 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 and Multipl- Add Then Multiply. Is that correct, David? Is that, have I said the title correctly? Correct. Um, and we'll probably be getting into um, some of David's philosophies, but I think before we kind of uh, get into that, it'd be really nice to just, okay, cool. just dig, go back to you know, when you were growing up, David, um, just a bit about your family life. Um, sure. Okay. So I know you're, you're Canadian for, for our listeners out there. So um, grew up in Vancouver. And uh, yeah, so just tell us about your journey, really, from a young boy to where you are today. Um, and then we can dig into some of the things that you really, that kind of light you up. Um, and anything, any bit of anything that you feel that our listeners would really get a lot of value from. Because um, as I mentioned earlier, looking to inspire yeah. Okay. So, um, so I'm the youngest of four, um, of, well, four kids. Um, my older siblings are four, eight and 10 years older than me. So, you know, as a family, we were quite spread out. Um, they like to think that I was the spoiled youngest child. I think that, you know, I was the one who had to work the hardest, but Hey, whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, growing up, um, looking at things like, you know, what, what got me interested in business and what got me interested in other stuff. Um, when I was 12 years old, I had a paper round. And in Canada, paper rounds work differently than in the UK. Uh, so in Canada, the papers would get delivered to a sort of a local substation, if you will. And a bunch of kids would show up and the papers would be delivered at about four o'clock in the morning. And the kids would show up around 4.30 and collect their newspapers and then go around and deliver them to all the houses that they had. Uh, I did mine on a bicycle. Uh, and um, and then at the end of the month, you would go round to all of your customers and collect their monthly subscription payment. And so I think that's quite different. Whereas in the UK, it's all paid for through a local news agent, and then and then the kids just deliver the paper. And I think I think for me that was a key lesson because it taught me um, first of all about dealing with money, and secondly about dealing with customers. And you know, funny little stories like. I had an old lady on my round and she said, you know, it was, it was really difficult for her to bend down and pick up the newspaper off her front porch. Could I put it in the, in the mail slot? Um, and so I put the thing into the mail slot. Well, every month after that, in addition to paying me, I got a $5 tip, you know, cause, cause I just, I made her life easier. And, and, and so for me, the, the, the combination of those two things, learning, learning to deal with money and carry money, um, and learning to uh, interact with customers were, were absolutely um, vital things on my journey. I think the other key thing I learned um, when I was 12, I came with my sister who was four years older and my mom and dad on a family trip to Europe. And we landed in London and I fell in love with London then. I've been in love with London ever since. And then we toured around the continent. We went to France, uh, Switzerland, Germany, and Holland. And I remember being both fascinated and frustrated. I was fascinated because everything was so different. You know, the cars were different. The way people dressed was different. The food was different. 
the architecture was different. And, you know, for someone growing up in Canada where it's not that old and, and things are relatively homogeneous to, to, to come along and, you know, literally you go over the border from, from Germany into Holland and it's completely different or from France into Germany and it's completely different. And I was fascinated, but I was frustrated because I couldn't communicate. And three years later, we came back on another family holiday. Uh, by this time, I'd done three years in high school and I'd done two years of French, sorry, three years of French and two years of German at school. And that just opened another world for me uh, because I was able to communicate, uh, you know, maybe not have p geopolitical discussions, but I could ask for directions. I could read a menu and order food and all of those normal day-to-day -day kind of things I could do. And, and, and I remember at the ripe old age of 15, uh, deciding that one day I would live in Europe. And 10 years later in 1987, my wife and I moved from uh, Vancouver to uh, Zurich, Switzerland. That's interesting. I was actually going to ask you about why London. So you, you've, you've obviously answered that very, very elegantly. Um, yeah, I still, I still love London. I, you know, and I've, I've been fortunate. I've been able to be in many of the world's large cities, uh, nowhere near all of them, but lots of them. And there's a, there's a buzz about London. It's, 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 there's something electric about London. I feel it every time I'm in Central That's fantastic. London. It's funny, earlier on, uh, Harry and I were, were talking, uh, Harry and Peter and I were talking about, um, you know, having, uh, you know, having different, different environments, inspiring different trains of thought. Um, and we, we were talking about the concept of having this kind of nomadic life where we might, you know, if, if each of us have a, you know, if, if Peter has a little pad in Berlin and Harry has a pad in South America and I have something in Seattle, or whatever, um, it's like you go to these places just to get a bit of, you know, a, a kind of be, become refreshed, um, and, it, and it does change yeah. your perspective. Can you, can you talk a bit about that um, by living in Europe and, and obviously growing up in Canada? Do you agree with that? Is there, do you have any first-hand experience of, oh, of maybe an idea gosh, that's come in a, in a totally different environment? Completely. No, I mean, I mean, travel opens your mind to new ideas, and that's always a great thing. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and learning another language, learning about another culture, learning about day-to-day -day life for other people. And, you know, it's really interesting when my wife and I travel these days, we, we might go to one or two museums if we go to a new city, but most of the time we just walk around the city and stop and, and sit and have a, a coffee and absorb life. Uh, I mean, um, uh, Peter, you're in Berlin right now. I mean, we were in Berlin uh, last year for four days. I had been to Berlin before on business, but not really as a as a you know a visitor, a tourist. And so my wife and I had four days in Berlin, and it was just fantastic. And you know, I mean, we went to a couple of the Berlin Wall related things, and we went, I think, to one art gallery. But but most of the time, we just walked around and observed life, and just 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 absorbed it. Um, and, and I find that a, a, a very deeply satisfying thing to do, to see how other people live and, and to communicate with them and to talk to them and to try their foods and to try, you know, to try th the things that the locals do. Definitely. Definitely. It was actually close to Berlin, not quite, I was in Cologne around Christmas time and, and we were in Cologne. It was really interesting because I've got a, a friend who, li who lives out there. He, he studied at uh, college with me in, in the UK and then he, he's over there and we went from Cologne and we drove to Amsterdam. 
And it is, it's really interesting just seeing the cultures and the different changes and, and just being able to, but I guess now thinking where we are with COVID and that, it's not quite that simple in this current time. And how have you found, how have you been, how have you been doing during this time, David? I mean, I've been fortunate. I've been very busy. I've been doing a lot of, um, I was reading some of the stuff that the government was putting it out and, and I was just reading it and thinking, like, I'm a chartered accountant. I understand finance. I can follow what he's saying. But the way the government was putting this information out was just, it, 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 I started speaking to people and they just said, it's so confusing. I don't understand it. And so I just started putting out articles and I just called them in plain English. You know, so I, I wrote about the, the job retention scheme. I wrote about the Siegel's loans. I wrote about the bounce back loans. I wrote about the grants and all of the different things and had fantastic feedback from people saying it was really nice to get something that was just short, sweet, direct and to the point. And it's, it's, it's like, I, I don't know, I guess, I mean, I would never want to be in, in, in government. That's not my thing, but I guess, I guess they were trying to put out something that would appeal to everyone. And yet it was really a quite a narrow audience that it needed to be appealed to. And, and they didn't use their language. Yeah. In fact, I was a silent fan of yours, David. Um, so it was very helpful. So <laughs> thanks for summarizing things. Certainly helped. My it pleasure. Certainly helped. Um, My pleasure. And yeah, I mean, apart from that, you know, I mean, I mean, lockdown was interesting. Um, I loved the fact that it happened in spring and summer and we had such good weather. Our kids are grown up, you know, it would have been nice to have seen our kids other than on Zoom, but hey, that was life. Um, but, you know, we, we, we went for walks every day. Um, I was working a lot. You know, my wife was out in the garden whenever I wanted to have a tea break. I'd make a cup of tea for both of us and we'd go and sit in the garden and enjoy the birds. And the fact that, you know, I live in West London in Ealing and, you know, not that we're on the direct Heathrow flight path, but every now and then we would get flights and there were none. Um, and the sky was so blue and the air was so fresh. Yeah. And actually it's interesting, so, all the pain and suffering. I would have hated to have been, a, I would have hated to have been alone in a flat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's, yeah, uh, there, there is obviously a lot of pain and suffering out there and the people are dying, but I think there's a lot of wonderful things that have come out of it. And I, I always like to try and focus on, on the positives, um, but it has been a, a time for reflection. And as you said, David, before we, before we started uh, recording, um, you know, the fact that we have the technology to be able to engage in this way, if it happened 25 years ago with dial-up, you know, we would have been in a different boat. Um, but I think um, for, for some folks, it's certainly harder um, if they're, they're stuck in a flat. Uh, but it does take um, a bit of strength, doesn't it, in a mindset to, to look at the positive. Because sometimes, it's, you know, if you start looking at the doom and gloom, that's all you're going to see. But it's like, where's the sunshine? Uh, and there is a lot of sunshine, even reflecting with your family and friends and and bringing people back together but yeah it's it's um it's some people now are actually sort of wish kind of they, they got used to that lockdown routine they got used to what they had and then when things started getting back to normal coming off furlough all that sort of thing they were like oh actually we missed kind of what happened there so i think it was really interesting but it caused us all to it, like i said just briefly at the beginning and um, it caused us all to stop we got given the four rules um and it found happiness and kind of what we had and where we are in the, in the reconnecting via zoom over uh, quizzes and, and FaceTime with family and friends. We actually connected more with families and friends than we probably did more before. Um, okay, so David, we, we've heard a little bit about your your younger upbringing. I think that was interesting about your paper round point about um, actually taught you a little bit about the money, the subscription, all that sort of so really interesting points. But could you maybe ask 
talk a little bit about your career, maybe what you've been up to recently, um, and just share with our audience a bit about that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, um, so I, 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 I trained as a chartered accountant with PwC, uh, qualified with them in Canada, moved with them to Zurich, Switzerland um, in 1987. Um, in 1989, I got an offer from my biggest client, uh, the so-called offer you can't refuse. Um, and so I left PwC and became the financial controller at uh, the Swiss subsidiary of NCR, a big international IT firm, probably best known these days for their hole-in-the-wall machines. Um, and um, spent four years with NCR in Switzerland and then moved with them to London in '93. During that time, NCR was taken over by AT&T. Uh, so that was kind of my first exposure to the world of mergers and acquisitions. Um, and that was a particularly messy one, but I don't need to go into that here. Um, and then um, I left after, I guess, eight years in total with NCR slash AT&T, four in the UK and four in Switzerland. I then spent three years in a brand new role in a brand new department in the BBC, which was a fascinating experience. Uh, I have the utmost respect for BBC in terms of everything it puts out in, as, as media, um, but as an organization to work inside, uh, the BBC and I were not a good fit. Um, and so I left them at the end of 1999, um, thinking, hey, I'm going to get a job with the dot-com. And thank goodness I didn't. Um, and then the next 10 years from sort of 2000 to 2010, I ended up in CFO roles for three very different organizations. One was an international PR agency group. Uh, one was a um, startup on AIM that was going to build a digital publishing and media business. Um, and one was a dot-com survivor that had reversed into a cash shell on AIM. So three very, and, and, it, and they were an online auction business. So very, very different in terms of what they did, but they all had one thing in common, which was that they all raised money and they all bought other companies. And over that 10-year period, I raised over £100 million in funding um, and bought or sold uh, more than 20 companies. And um, since that time, I've, uh, so I left in 2010. Um, I had a bit of a, I had a bit of a, a burnout midlife crisis following the financial crash. Um, having been the, the CFO of a, of a, a global auction company uh, and waking up in the morning and realizing that I had $200 million of other people's cash on my balance sheet in banks around the world, some of which were failing. Oh my um, and it was like, <laughs> um, so that was, a, that was a pretty hairy time. Um, but I left, I left that business at the end of 2010 and uh, had my midlife crisis moment and launched a wine business, which was tremendous fun. But um, I don't like to use the word failure, so I'll say it was a great learning experience. <laughs> Brilliant. I still have the wine business today. I'm its largest customer by some measure. So as my best friend says, it's a great way to enjoy your hobby on a tax-free basis and you get to drink wine at wholesale prices. Brilliant, brilliant. But for most of the last 10 years, I've been working um, directly with uh, founders of businesses and for the last five years exclusively with founders of businesses uh, looking at how to scale up. Um, and during that time, I've been involved with several companies where I was either a co-founder um, or got brought in to help them raise capital. 
the numbers aren't as big, but in the last five years, I've raised probably four or five million pounds in uh, debt and equity funding. Um, and I've bought one, two, three companies for one client and am in discussions currently about a couple of other acquisitions for potential clients. I'm also in uh, discussions with two clients about uh, selling their businesses. You're putting what you learned into practice. So, and actually, for, for our listeners yeah, out there, exactly. uh, David does detail a lot of these uh, acquisition stories in his book, uh, Add, Add Them Multiply. Um, so you have to check it out because um, it is a fascinating read to actually put uh, these principles into practice. So David, I have a question for you. So what lights you up? What lights me up? Wow. Um, personally, professionally, both. What lights me up? Um, what lights me up is my family, my wife and my two girls. Um, spending time together with them. I mean, that was, that was one of the cool things about lockdown. Because uh, my daughters are grown up now, they're they're 27 and 30. Um, and uh, during lockdown, my, normally my wife and I go back to Canada for a month. And during lockdown this year, obviously we couldn't. And then when things got relaxed a bit, uh, we ended up doing a couple of holidays in the UK with our daughters and their partners. And that was really, really a lot of fun. Really, really enjoyed that. So yes, family like uh, good music lights me up. And and. You know, the opportunity to connect with people who are interested in growing and the opportunity to to give them something that might be a little different from what they've otherwise seen. You know, you 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 Google, you know, business growth and you'll get all sorts of articles about sales funnels and digital marketing and pay-per-click and Facebook ads and all of these things, and they're all good things. Um, but a lot of small businesses don't think about, well, what could I do to raise some money and buy someone? And when I start talking with people about that and they hear that, they kind of go, well, how can I do that? You know, how can a small business raise money? Well, you know, the, the, again, in the age we're in now with things like crowdfunding and stuff, the, the opportunities for, for small businesses to raise capital and, and look at buying other companies. And, you know, maybe you're going to buy a competitor. Maybe you're going to buy a, a, an upstream supplier. Um, just something that, that can help to expand that, <clears throat> that position. And as I talk about um, in, in the front section of the book, you know, if you look at organic growth um, and, and once you get, you know, once you get kind of to an established size, let's say over a million pounds in turnover, it's hard to grow at more than 20, 25% per annum. It requires a lot of effort. It requires a lot of just slogging in and, and all of that. And, you know, raising capital and buying another company that was already there and in existence can double you overnight. Um, and I mean, I, 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 the, the, the most detailed case study um, that's in the book, and I, I cover the entire three years that I was with the company, uh, was uh, an aimlisted business in the digital publishing and, and sorry, digital media and publishing sector. And when I joined that company, um, our sales were 1.1 million um, and profits were about 400,000. When I left three years later, sales were 27.7 million and uh, profits were four and a half million. So we, we, grew, we grew our top line 25x and our profit line, I think, 11x in, in three years. You can't do that with organic growth. Unless you're, unless you're really lucky and in a very hot sector. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, David, you mentioned about the, so we're talking about the book and obviously these the transformations you just mentioned about. Could you actually tell us, I'd like to learn a bit more about, about the book. And I guess you talk about this methodology of FACE, so it's the Fund, Acquire, Consolidate, Exit model. For those listeners that may be a bit in, more interested in the book and a bit more about, about your story, would you just give us a quick insight into maybe why you wrote the book, what it's about, and then also about this methodology? I had been... So I guess it, it kind of comes back when, when, when James said that we were introduced by a mutual contact, Daniel Priestley. Um, I had done a program that Daniel runs and one, it's called Key Person of Influence, an excellent program. Um, and one of the things that they encourage on that is that you publish things. So whether that's a blog or a podcast or just get content out into the world. And <clears throat> the core element of the published section of, of, of this uh, program is to publish a book. Um, and I had been talking about this since I completed the program in 2015. And uh, I know when, when James and I first met, I was like, oh yeah, I'm gonna write a book. And yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I sound like. <laughs> and um, I, I had been, I had been, uh, I had been wor uh, working with one particular client over a number of years and uh, that relationship came to an end um, at the end of 2018. And all of a sudden I had a lot of time. And one of my other clients uh, gave me a friendly kick up the bum and said, um, I know you want to do more public speaking. I'm running an event in June. Um, I'll let you be the main speaker at the event if you have your book written by then. So that was a perfect incentive. He knew I had the time. He knew I had the content. Uh, he knew I just needed that friendly kick up the bum. Um, and, and he provided it. Um, and that's that's my friend Drew Shaw. Oh, brilliant! That's brilliant. So, what was the time frame? So, how long did you give yourself to write it? Uh, so, I had a six-month period to, to to get it written. Yeah, it 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 finally was. It, so, the book was published and and officially out on the 9th of July. Uh, the event was in late June, uh, but I was able to give Drew the typeset manuscript, showing him that it was done. Um, in time for this event uh, and 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 so he he accepted that because the, the the editing process took a little longer than I'd thought um, mainly because and, and and this was a fantastic uh, thing I sent the um, I sent the first uh, manuscript to four very good very critical friends and I said don't hold back and they didn't and as a result of the feedback that they gave me, I completely rewrote the front section of the book. I'd like to take this moment to introduce to you our sponsor, Flexi, the must-have app to track and manage your subscriptions in one place. So most of us have multiple subscriptions nowadays for things like streaming services, gym memberships, and food deliveries. These are great and take the hassle out of buying everyday products that we consume regularly but it can be hard to keep track of them. That's where Flexi comes in handy, using super secure technology to connect your accounts to see all your subscriptions in a single dashboard, putting you in control of your spending. And what's more, Flexi's subscription marketplace allows you to discover new products you may love, or easy to pause, resume, or cancel in a swipe or two. So give Flexi a try, it's free to download from the App Store, or check out their website at www.flexiapp.uk, that's F-L, E-X-Y at dot UK. Back to the podcast. Interesting. 
Can you talk about your process? So, like, I mean, I'm one. Of, well, I was you in 2015 to say, you know, I'm going to write a book, um, and I I need to get off my my backside and and actually write my book. Um, and certainly, this podcast has been inspiring because you know we're speaking to a lot of really interesting people. So, I'd, I'd like to share some of the the stories that we're we're learning about. So, could you just talk to our listeners about? what what was required and how you planned your your day because I'm, I'm just interested from a personal point of view but also you know if, if one of us yeah so so all those folks out there that would like to write a book what what should they expect and, and what would you recommend for, just from going through it yourself writing comes in fits and starts i had some days where i struggled to get a hundred words written i had other days where i was just touched by the muse and five or six thousand words just flowed out of me um, so, you know, don't, don't worry if you, don't worry if you have some of those bad days, you know, it's, 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 it's almost like cold calling, you know, that you've got to make 70 calls a day to get the leads. And then all of a sudden it'll come and writing's the same thing. You've just got to, I, I set aside two days a week where the diary was clear and I would write. And if I couldn't write, I'd revisit my plan. Or sometimes if I was totally blocked, I'd just go for a walk. Um, and, and on the days where it flowed, it was, you know, people talk about being in the zone, like it just came out of me and, and yeah, I, in fact, there was one time where, where our daughters were coming around for dinner and, and my wife was saying, well, are you coming down? And I'm saying, no, I'm still writing. And it was, that was one of those days where five or 6,000 words just came out and, and I just, I wanted to get them all out. And, um. I mean, in terms of time, uh, so I would say the writing took three months um, and then the um, editing process. So I went through the first set of feedback from my, my four beta readers um, and then rewrote the front end and then it went through two professional edits and then the typeset proof and then it was published. So yeah, I mean, I've heard of people who've done it faster than that, but I think I think you know, from start to finish in six months is pretty good. And of course, and of course, the content was 30 years in the making. Did you say that? Okay. So, uh, yes, of course, that's something that you, uh, you need the, the knowledge beforehand. So the editing piece, was that an important part of the, the process? It sounds like it was. Do you need your oh, editors? Crucial, crucial, absolutely crucial because, you know, I mean, I mean, the, 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 so the beta readers was, was not so much like for the editing for grammar and stuff like that, but just, you know, does this make sense and all that. And, and their feedback was great. But then the editing process really, you know, and it just, it went through and made sure that your syntax was correct, that your grammar was correct, that, you know, that when you made certain statements, well, could you back them up? I mean, it was really quite interesting because um, particularly in, in the, the, stories that I talk about from the two listed PLCs, I gave a lot of information and the editor came back and said, you know, are you sure this is okay to give? And, and I said, yeah, it's fine because these were public companies. There is nothing, there might've been some nuances, but in terms of the facts and data that I gave, there was nothing that wasn't already in the public domain if you wanted to go and look for it. Very good, James. You've got to April next year to get your book written and find an editor. <laughs> okay, I need, I need someone to give me a... a <laughs> It's like, yeah, what is that line in the sand? So, so David, yeah. can I just, sorry, I just wanted to bring you back to the, the methodology around face, actually. I'd be really interested to, if you yep. wouldn't just mind sharing a little with everyone, it's a bit more about that FACE. Sure. So, yeah, so um, 
face is fund, acquire, consolidate, and exit. Um, and so if you look at each of the four stages, fund is all about how do you get money into a company? And, um, you know, you can, you can, you can raise sales and bring that in, but there's lots of books that talk about that. Uh, you can look at grant funding. Um, and, and, and I know Harry, you got some grant funding or some prize funding for some of your early venture stuff. Um, there are fewer books about that. There are some people who specialize in it. It's not really my field, but I talk about it very briefly. Um, and then the other two key areas that you can get funding into a business are through um, uh, either raising debt funding or raising equity funding. And I go through in the book about, you know, what, what are the differences between each of those and the pros and cons, and then depending on what stage the business is at. So I'll talk about, you know, what's a friends and family round, what's crowdfunding, what's angel investing, what's VCs, what's private equity. And, you know, even some might argue the pinnacle is, you know, what about listing as a public company? Um, and I just talk through with, you know, practical real life examples at each of those different stages. And in fact, that was one of the best pieces of feedback that I got from my beta readers. It was actually from my nephew, who's an IFA in Canada. And the, when he wrote back and he said, your chapter on funding is really boring. And we had a conversation about it. And as a result of his feedback, I created this, this fictitious company called ABC Limited that was run by Annabelle, Brian, and Charlie. And as Annabelle, Brian, and Charlie's company grew, I took them through venture. I took them through angel investing, venture capital, private equity, and doing an IPO. And as a result of that, you know, it it, it made it real. It made the theoretical part real. Um, and that was a that was a huge, huge light bulb moment uh, for which, to my uh, to my nephew Vince, I'm I'm eternally grateful because it also meant in all of my subsequent writings, I made sure that I was telling stories about people, even if they were fictitious stories. Because people at a human level, you know, and this is, this is anthropological and stuff, but human beings connect with stories. So that's, that, so that's, that's, that's the fundraising chapter. Uh, then in the acquisitions, uh, and there's specific chapters on each of the four stages in the book. Um, so the acquisition chapter, it talks about what it means to acquire a company, what are the different choices that you can look at, what are the routes that you can go down, how does it typically happen? So, you know, you don't just sort of say, right, I'm gonna buy that company, but what's the process that you go to? And, you know, you've gotta have meetings with them and then try and reach some kind of a deal. And, you know, and I talk about how that happened with different acquisitions. I mean, one in particular, I remember it was, um, it was actually someone that, uh, this was again at that first listed company, a company called Huvo PLC, um, <clears throat> and through a mutual contact of mine, we met a guy who had a business that was for sale, and so I introduced the founder to this other guy who had this business, and um, they <laughs> they met for a, a glass of champagne at the bar of the Lanesborough Hotel, and they got on so well that they actually agreed the headline terms of the deal, wrote it out on a cocktail Lovely. napkin, and had another bottle of champagne together to celebrate. <laughs> those napkins are great, aren't they? Oh, I love those stories. Oh, those napkins Napkin are wonderful. Stories, brilliant. And actually, what... Yeah. Okay, yeah. sorry. I guess you haven't finished. That's okay. Um, so, so, yeah, so that's the, the acquisition piece. And then, and then the consolidation piece. And as I say in the book, this is really where the rubber hits the road. This is the hard part because this is where you're putting two companies together and you have to take a view. First of all, 
am I going to put them together into one company um, with a view that together they're stronger? Or, you know, you look at some of the big conglomerates like Unilever and things, and, you know, they've got hundreds and hundreds of subsidiaries. They're all in similar industries, but they all are completely independent and not put together other than the fact that they're owned by, by Unilever. Um, but typically when you're in a, 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 an SME environment, you're going to look to put these things together to gain the synergy. So, you know, I use the example of buying a competitor or buying an upstream supplier. It makes total sense to put those businesses together. And so I talk about the cultural issues that you have to address, you know, the values and the systems and the processes and dealing with all of the people issues and, you know, what's it like. And I go through examples of consolidation jobs that have worked well. And I go through examples of consolidations jobs where, you know, it's, it's been really tough. Um, I go into some detail in the one, the, the, the second PLC where I worked um, because we did that acquisition in the spring of 2008. And um, we put together to, to, to raise the money on the stock market. We published a prospectus and said, this was our plan. This is what we were going to do. We came back to the market in the autumn of 2008 and said, we've done everything. We've ripped five million pounds of cost out of the combined businesses. We're on track, la-di-da. And the following week, Lehman Brothers went bust. And we had to rip another seven million pounds of cost out of the business over the next six months just to survive. And, you know, that was really tough. So go through that. And then the final, the final stage um, is E is for exit. And again, I talk about different routes. So you can have trade sale. Um, you can do an IPO where perhaps as a, you know, as the, as the founding team, you might want to stay on for a little while, but have the benefit of, of, of having a, a listing and being a public company. Uh, and again, just talk about what are the stages that you need to go through. And probably the biggest issue within the exit stage, which is actually just the mirror side of the acquisition stage, because it's someone else buying the company. But the biggest challenge here um, is for the founder or the founding team to um, emotionally accept that they've just sold the baby that they've created. And that can be really tough. I've heard, I've heard that's tough. Yeah, I mean, interesting. I think um, one of the themes that has resonated as well is that um, you're encouraging small businesses to think like, so basically the tools that bigger businesses use, like the face, fund acquire, consolidate, exit, there's no reason why you can't think big as a small business and actually have the same mindset. And I think that actually brings it down to the reality of, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs or business owners um, and the point you made about, you know, organic growth is all welfare and good. And it's a path that most businesses take and it's and it can be respected. But if you are looking to, you know, really get that exponential growth, um, just a slight change in strategy. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to work any harder. It's just a different it's just a different view of the world. Um, and the outcome. Exactly is exactly. is quite a lot different so i mean i i, I always as yeah. an entrepreneur i always like to start with the end in mind um you know do you want you, you know what, what kind of business do you want um you know do you want your unicorn do you want your lifestyle business um i know daniel talks yep. about that um so yep. it's uh but it, it's really do you have any more anything more to say around those lines as far as the, the small business thinking like big business or having the same tools i i, I think i think i think the biggest challenge that a lot of SME owners will face when they come to this. And, and, and this is one of the key sections in the front end of the, of the book. I've got a chapter in there that's called your head um, because you've got to get 
your head around certain things. And the biggest challenge for a lot of, uh, of founders and, and, and I, and I make it, you know, quite clear if, if this is something you're not willing to do, then this isn't the book for you. And you know, that's cool. It's okay. Um, the biggest issue that a lot of founders have is the idea that they might not be in control of their business anymore. They might not own a controlling stake. They might not own a hundred percent, you know, they might only end up with a minority stake in the business. But you know, as, 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 as I put it, um, you know, I mean, when I was growing up, the expression was, would you rather own 1% of General Motors or 100% of a local car dealership? Um, General Motors isn't perhaps the best example anymore, but, you know, would you rather own 1% of Apple or 100% of a, of a, you know, a, a, an IT company? They're two very different things. But, you know, if you, if you take, if you take like, and I, I, I deliberately kind of target the book at the owners of businesses between kind of one and 10 million in turnover. That's sort of my sweet spot. So let's go right down the middle and say you're running a business with 5 million in turnover. Would you rather own a business, would you rather own 100% of a business with 5 million in turnover or 50% of a business with 100 million in turnover? That, that's the choice that you have to make. And neither is right or wrong, it depends. Um, but but that's, that's a realistic choice that if someone wanted to follow my methodology and say, no, I want to own that hundred million pound business. Well, here's the route to getting there. But as part of that route, you've got to be comfortable with the fact that you're not going to own all of it. There will be other people on your board. Um, and you know, there might even come a time when the investors fire the founder, like happened to Steve jobs at Apple. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, but John, John Maxwell, in, in his book, The 21 Laws of Irrefutable Leadership, talks about the lid, you know, and depending on the individual, the lid is going to be higher for certain people. And it's this, it's, again, it's a mindset thing. It's like delegation or, you know, the example you just used, you're, you're going to be giving up a bit of control or a bit of ownership, but actually the pie is much bigger. Um, and everyone has a lid. And most people, you know, they'll, they'll basically cap out at a certain size. And like I mentioned, some people's lids are higher than others. Can you talk about that at all? Have you, are you familiar with that terminology? Yeah, I mean, I, I've not heard it used in, in that sort of phraseology, but I understand exact, exactly what you mean. So one of my mentors um, is, uh, was, was the founder of, of, of Hugo PLC. Um, he had been the chief executive and then the executive chairman and then the non-executive chairman of a FTSE. 100 over a 20 odd year period and then there was a clause in his contract that said that when he turned 65 he had to resign from the board and so he resigned from the board and about a year and a half later um, a smaller firm in the same industry got into a spot of trouble and they were private equity backed and the PE firm approached uh, John and said you know would you like to um, would you like would you come in and be the chairman and help us sort this out and the board of the FTSE 100 company said no he can't it was in breach of his uh retirement restrictions and things and and so he couldn't um but then as soon as his retirement restrictions ended uh john listed a new company on the stock exchange raised 250 million pounds went out and bought three companies and uh, last year attempted a hostile takeover of the FTSE 100 company, which sadly didn't go ahead. But, um, you know, there, 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 there's a man whose lid's pretty high. <laughs> um, 
you know, others, um, I, I mean, um, one of the guys that I'm working with now where I'm the CFO of his business, um, a few years ago, we raised uh, half a million pounds. Um, when I first met Drew, he was a one-man band with a lot of kind of volunteers helping him create a movement and a cause kind of thing. Um, and we raised half a million pounds and created a team and created some structure and, and have built that business up. And um, last year, so it, we're a March year end. In last year's accounts for, for March of this year, which we've just finished, um, our EBITDA is more than turnover was before we raised the money. So you know those kind of those kind of growth stories are, are are entirely possible, and that was three okay, years. Okay, three years, and it's it's just again, it's just, but you've got to start with the mindset, uh, or or um, you've got to know where you want to where, where you want to go. And the interesting thing is that was the first time I was I was speaking on stage at an event. That was the first time that I publicly spoke about face, and Drew, the founder of this business, was in the audience. Very interesting. And David, what is mindset, and how is that? Why is it so important? Can you just quickly for audience, what does mindset mean to you? Why is that so important? Wow. Um, yeah. So mindset is how you think. Um, what, what, wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. Good question, <laughs> Harry. <laughs> yeah. So my mindset is, is, is what and how you think, how focused you are, how open or closed you are to distractions and other thoughts. I know some people who are, are, are in, I mean, Drew, for example, is incredibly focused. He knows where he's going. Um, and for a lot of people, they find it difficult to kind of distract him. Fortunately, through the work that we've done together, I found ways where, where on, on the occasion where I need Drew to really pay attention, he will. Um, so I, okay, you know, it's very hard to derail him off the journey that he's on, but every now and then I can, I can do a little course correction. I'm going to, I'm going to um, preface the question a little differently. So what does, what does growth mindset mean to you? Ah, what does growth mindset mean to me? Um, the, it means to me the acceptance and the willingness to try new things and go after opportunities with a view to growing um, and, and not being afraid to fail. Um, I think, I think, and, and it's, it's really interesting having grown up in, in, in North America and oh, I was in Canada, culturally Canada has huge influence from America. And, you know, in, in the entrepreneur culture in America, failing is sort of a, a badge of honor. You know, you, you know, I mean, I know some people who say, you know, un until you've lost your first business in a spectacular disaster, you haven't really run a business. And, and, you know, in the UK, it's coming around to that. But I remember, I remember the first time when I was a, a main board director of a listed company. And I remember talking to some people and they, they were talking about this guy who was on the board of another company and he had, he had been a non-exec director and he'd been very successful in his other career. And then he launched a new business and it failed. And he was asked by the board of that company to resign because they didn't want to have someone who had a failure on their board. And I think that's sad because as, as I said earlier on, I think, I think the word failure should be changed to learning.
You know, we're, we're, we, we all come into this world with, into this life and, you know, there's no instruction manual. Our parents don't have an instruction manual. We don't have an instruction manual. We're figuring it out every day. We're, we're creating life every day in the moment. And it's not always going to be a roaring success. And that's okay. Absolutely. And it was actually interesting. We had Liz uh, Beck, who on, I think, last week on, on the Rocket Pod, and she made this really interesting point about when you're born, you, you, you're born, as you don't learn or know anything when you're born, you learn your beliefs, you learn what failure is from other people, from external influences. And I think that's an interesting yep. point that we've learned somewhere. Well, we've been told at points that failure is a bad thing and actually it's not, it's a learning experience. It's something that you have, you have to have to, yep. to, to develop and move on. I am, I am a bit of a geek when it comes to books about the brain and mindset and philosophy and all that kind of stuff. I'm currently reading a book called Live Wired by uh, Professor David Eagleman, uh, who's a neuroscientist based in California. Um, he's, he's been on lots of TV shows, so lots of people will have heard of him. Um, and, and, and his whole story is, is exactly what you say. You know, we're born and we have this amazing three pound lump of stuff inside our head uh, that has the ability to adapt to whatever comes into it. So, you know, you could take identical twins, separate them at birth, raise one of them in the UK, raise the other one in Japan. Uh, the one raised in Japan will learn to speak fluent Japanese. The one raised in the UK will learn to speak fluent English and they'll learn through different experiences. And, and then he talks as well about things like when stuff ha so you go blind well all of a sudden your auditory and your touch base systems take over your visual cortex which is a huge chunk at the back of your brain and that's how blind people can read braille you know if, you, if you've ever tried rubbing your hands over braille it feels it feels a little bumpy but like there's no way you can make out what those bumps mean but but when you're when you're those parts of your brain take over a, a bigger part and they do um, you know, all of a sudden you have that sensitivity that you can feel exactly what those bumps are and you can read. And I don't know if you've ever seen anyone read Braille, but it's astonishing how fast they go. There was something, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? There was there's something I learned recently. Um, there was one entrepreneur that every mealtime, you know, evening meal with his family, he would ask his children how many times they had failed that day. Um, and I guess there is that argument where, you know, if you have, if you're not failing, then you're not, you're not trying hard enough. Um, and I, I want to share something else with, with our listeners. So um, I went out for a, a dinner with a, a really good friend of mine, Ben Kapinski, um, and he's, uh, he's, he's been helping on the legal side with, with Flexi. And he talked to me about um, this story of, a, of a, a, a moth trying to get out of a chrysalis. And this 12-year-old this boy you know, watched this moth struggling. So um, he thought he'd help the moth. So he, he cut cut the uh, you know chrysalis and let the moth out but what he didn't realize is, is that the um the struggle the moth was going through was actually getting blood into the wings of the moth so it could actually uh, fly um so what what he did by helping it actually weakened the moth you know and you know I, I probably died um so you know i think um through through this failure and hardship and you know you can actually you become stronger and you can actually apply that to physical fitness you can you know if you if you you know work your mind you learn a language or write a book or you know you can actually become stronger and i think that's a really good message to to our listeners um you know on the whole failure piece the struggle you know are we struggling enough you know can you comment about that at all 
Oh, I, I saw, I mean, I've, I've read so many wonderful quotes about it. Um, uh, I saw a really interesting one recently on LinkedIn. Uh, someone actually put up a, a short video of David Bowie. Uh, and, and he was saying, you know, if you, if you find things are easy, you're not challenging yourself enough. You're not doing enough, you know, and, and, and um, another one I saw recently was um, the author, Neil Gaiman, and it was a valedictory uh, or, or commencement speech that he gave, I think at the University of the Arts here in London. And his core theme was no matter what happens, make good art, you know, and if you're having a bad day, make good art. And if you're having a great day, make good art, you know, and it comes back to that, that, theme and for me it's become a bit of a philosophy that as human beings we are creating our lives every day and so you know give your best shot your best shot you can stand back and, and look at it with pride you know I, I mean when 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 i came to the realization that my wine business wasn't gonna do what i had hoped um i went into a, a very dark period for about 18 months um, I never want to go back there, but it's an experience that definitely has has shaped me ever mm, since. That's interesting. And actually, I'm, so I'm reading a book. I can't I remember the author's name, but it's all, it's a book on strategy, um, and it talks about this this creative strategy. There's you know there's um, I guess quantitative strategy and there's creative strategy, and this making art thing again, art's quite subjective, um, and um, it makes the point that quite often when things are going really well, and let's just put this in a business context. Um, you know, strategy is kind of pushed to the back. It's not that important because things are going well. And as soon as, you know, um, the shit hits the fan, um, we need the organization looks around to try and find someone that's good at strategy. Um, but actually by making art in the good times and the bad times, um, it could actually be translated into, you know, strategy. And then it, it obviously flows down to what you were talking earlier about face. Um, so yeah, it's just, anyway, that's a, it's interesting. Just a little light bulb moment. It, no, it is. It's, 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 you know, I, I, I think strategy is an incredibly useful thing if you use it as a tool for which it was designed. You know, the, the great thing about strategy and writing down a strategy is it forces you to be clear. Not only this is what we're doing and this is where we're going, but therefore all of this is what we're not. And, and I think in, in my experience, the greatest benefit of having a written strategy, especially if times are bad, is having that clarity of, we don't do this stuff. And, and for me, uh, the experience of writing a book was, was hugely uh, instrumental for me in terms of developing, well, this is what I do. And therefore, if this is what I do, I don't do this. And I have lots of clients who come to me and say, well, you know, can you, can you sort of review my books and be my financial controller? Well, yes, I can, but no, I'm not going to. I know plenty of people, you know, if you want that as a service, I have plenty of people in my network who can provide that. This is what mm, I do. That's interesting. And in fact, um, it just makes me think, so the, the exercise I've gone through this week on my, I've actually painted myself a nice blackboard. I've got these nice colorful chalk pens. It's quite exciting. Um, I've written on the board the things I'm not doing um, because <laughs> I want to start there. It is the opposite to what, you know, because, you know, what, whatever strategy you write, whether you actually, because you, sometimes you just do a 180. It's like, you know what, that doesn't feel right. I'm going to go this way. And, and then being able to respond to the environment is also a, an important part of strategy, you know, being bl blinkered onto just doing one thing, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's the life of an, of an entrepreneur, isn't it? That's brilliant. Exactly. Really good points, David. Really good points. So Thank I guess you. we're, um, I guess we're getting close to uh, coming to time. 
Um, so thanks for sharing these little stories and, and just the, you know, your, some of your philosophies. If, if you were to leave our listeners with um, one piece of advice, uh, what would that be? Get out and see the world with open eyes and open ears and relish every experience that you have as a result of it. Because by seeing and hearing and experiencing, we learn. Perfect. Great bit of advice. David, and actually just one thing from me. So for our listeners who maybe want to get in contact with you or follow your story, um, and we know that you've got a TEDx talk that you're doing on Friday, I think this week as well. Um, yep. So we're not sure when this episode yep. is going to go live. But um, for those that maybe want to listen to that talk, want to get in contact, have you got a website? We just have to share a few details with them. Sure. Um, the easiest way to find me is to Google David B. Horn. Horn spelled H-O-R-N-E. The B is important because there are several other David Horns who compete with me on Google. There's the chief executive of what used to be Virgin Trains. Uh, there's a Scottish composer. Um, there's a makeup artist. And there's a guy who has at least 50 gay novels on Amazon. Um, and so, um, Make sure the B. B is my middle initial. And, and so, so yeah, so David B Horn, Google David B Horn perfect, and perfect. you'll find and me. The book. Um, my website is called addthenmultiply.com. Uh, but David B Horn and all my LinkedIn, my Twitter and all of that stuff is, is, is on there. Perfect. That's the easiest right. way. And, and, uh, and Peter, uh, you've been very, um, conspicuous in your silence. Do you have any, uh, any a question a burning question for, for david before we uh, we wrap up i had a question about the routine of writing and james kind of got in on that one I, maybe a question about when you were saying uh you're involved in a 200 million dollar pound fund kind of in the middle of the financial crisis and kind of the weight of that so i guess the my question is how do you separate kind of that huge weight of like a financial kind of burden and just a work burden like how do you separate that from your personal life and kind of what tools did you learn kind of after that um because i can't imagine many people would ever have that kind of stress on them but what kind of tools did you learn wow that's a really that's a really good question so um <clears throat> I guess it would have been, I mean, when Lehman's themselves went bust, it was like a big shock. And then there was AIG, the insurance company that had ended up getting a bailout. And then, and then there were a whole bunch of other banks that were either failing or getting bailouts. And so I ended up, I, I woke up one morning and I mean, you know, pardon my French, but I was shitting myself um, because, you know, so we, we were an auction business. And so people were buying equipment at our auctions sending money to us and then we had a settlement process where we would keep our commission and then pay the people who owned the things and we i woke up this morning you know after a couple of banks in i think it was after a couple of banks in asia had failed and i wrote out to all of my team we were in 23 countries around the world and i said please give me a list of all of the banks where we have money and I got that list back that day and I would say half of the banks I'd never even heard of. And it just sort of hit me as a realization that, you know, oh my God, we have this level of responsibility. And as the CFO, ultimately I have it um, to make sure that this money is safe. And we're in a situation where I don't know who these banks are. 
Um, you know, the local guys have always dealt with these banks and it's always been fine, but all of a sudden this global financial crisis has put this into such a stark and different light. There was probably a period of a week or so when separating the stress of that from normal life was next to impossible um, because I just, I felt the weight of responsibility. And I, I, one of the first things I did was uh, I contacted the chief exec and I contacted the rest of the board and I just said, Hey, I'm doing this. This is what we're finding out. I'll keep you posted on a daily basis as we get this information. Cause I felt that was, you know, that was the right thing to do. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a very, very stressful time. I think what I've learned since then is as, as, as human beings, we, we can create more stress for ourselves than we need to. Um, and you know, sometimes you get into a situation where you've just got a, a complete shitstorm going on in your head and that happens. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a human reaction. Um, and what I've learned since is that you have to let it happen, but equally you can to a degree by recognizing that that's what's going on. You can also realize that once that settles, clarity will return. And when you have that clarity, you can tap into deeper parts of your mind and, and, and be more rational and be more logical. It's, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the, they talk about the different levels of the brain. And when, when, you're, when you're, your reptilian brain, you know, when the fight or flight thing kicks in because you're confronted by a saber-toothed tiger, well, the, you know, the, the modern neocortex of your brain just shuts down because you don't want to think, you know, well, what strategically would be my choices here? It's either, am I going to fight this thing or am I going to run like hell? So, yeah, I, again, as I, as I said earlier, I, I geek out on, on anything that's related to the brain and psychology and philosophy, and, and I've done a lot of reading around that. So, yeah, those are, those are my thoughts on, on that's a long-winded answer to your question about stress. That's great. Uh, also, do you have any, just you mentioned about books and reading, do you have any resources that you'd like to share? So whether that's podcasts, books, YouTube videos, maybe like a couple. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, apart from my book, of course. Um, so books that have had a thing about Warren Buffett. I think, I think Warren Buffett in, in any entrepreneur should read Warren Buffett to just get a no nonsense, um, very plainly spoken, very uncomplicated. You know, this is how I see life. This is how I see business. I think I, Warren Buffett is unquestionably one of my heroes. Um, uh, any books by Daniel Priestley? We mentioned Daniel, uh, who introduced me and James. Uh, my favorite of Daniel's books is called Entrepreneur Revolution. Uh, he recently released the 10th anniversary edition of that book. That's an ex excellent book, but any of Daniel's books are good. Um, and then just looking on my table over there, um, the infinite game by Simon Sinek. If you want, if you want long-term thinking, that's a really good book. Have you read the 21 laws of irrefutable leadership, David? Okay. No, well, I'm going to get it to you and I'm, I'm going to send it to you. 
just to say thank you from us. You're a gentleman. Yeah, thank you. Brilliant. Um, I do. I think you might have actually answered this question, but if you were to sit down with a coffee with with any person, who would that be? I think you've already answered it, but be interested to see whether it's the same. <laughs> it would probably be Warren, but I've already talked about when. And the funny thing is, I actually wrote to Warren Buffett and asked to interview him for my book, but I got a I got a very polite letter from his secretary saying no, okay, you can't. Book. Um, but I, but I did send him a copy of the book anyway when it came out. Uh, no, actually, that, that, this, is a, this is another one of my favorite book stories. So I'm a huge REM fan. Um, and every single REM album, there is at least one song where Michael Stipe's words speak straight and deeply into my heart. Um, so it would have to be Michael Stipe. And, and my, little, my, my little story is when I was writing the book, my publisher said, I was asking the publisher about quoting things and, and she said, you can do one or two lines with a reference. Um, that's fine. Anybody who's been dead more than 50 years, there's no copyright issues, but don't try to do things from movies and don't try to do things from songs um, because it's impossible to get the rights. And even if you do get the rights, it'll cost you an absolute fortune to use them. And midway through writing the book, it was a Saturday night, I'd had a couple of glasses of wine, I was feeling relaxed and I thought, you know, I really wanna have this line from REM in my book. And so I found the band manager's contact details online, wrote him an email. Um, within about 25 minutes, I got a reply from him. So this was, so this was about 9.30 at night on a Saturday here, so 4.30 in the afternoon, five in the afternoon in Athens, Georgia. I got a reply from him saying, shouldn't be a problem. Let me check with the guys. And I just, but, <laughs> so, so I went to bed. I woke up in the morning and I'd had an email come in at, at like quarter past two in the morning, which would have been 9.15 in the evening on, on the East Coast of America, saying, all good. The band are honored by your kindness, good sir. And I'm like, what? R.E.M. are honored by me? <laughs> So yeah, Mike, uh, definitely I'd love to have a coffee with Warren, but uh, since he declined the interview already, I'll go with Michael Stipe. Final question. So add, a, add the multiply, just, just for audience, David, is available on Amazon so people can go buy the book. It's available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle version. There's an audio version that has been recorded that will be on Audible soon, I am assured, although it's been in the queue since the end of June. Thank you for listening to the final episode of series one. I can't believe we're already at the end already, but do not go anywhere. Hit that subscribe button as we have got series two coming very, very soon. The guests including founder of Photobox, Graham Hobson, best-selling author, entrepreneur and international speaker, Daniel Priestley. And on the mic, we've got founder of MyPT Hub, Phil Carr, just to name a few. So please do hit that subscribe button check out our social media at We Are Rocket Pod as we will be coming back very, very soon. Thank you to our awesome sponsor, Flexi. If you haven't done it already, you should get that downloaded and start managing your subscriptions today. That's F-L-E-X-Y. From myself, James and Peter, thank you all so much for your amazing support. We'll see you next time.